Hey guys, it's Michael Miller. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Dallas Podcast. You are going to be highly, highly encouraged. Rabbi Jason gives us two incredible teachings. Uh, in the AM, we talked about Boaz and Ruth, their relationship, and its significance today. Jew Gentile, Jew Arab relationships, unity, oneness, the vow Naomi makes to Ruth, the relationship Ruth has with Boaz is a prophetic picture for today. Uh, he unpacks thoroughly the Israeli Arab conflict happening at the current time uh, between Jerusalem, Israel, the West Bank, uh, Gaza Strip, the Palestinians. Um, you'll be highly informed in how to pray and I think encouraged with uh, what the Lord uh, is up to second sermon is on pentecost uh, we devote an entire time talking about the significance of pentecost he looks back at the historical context and uh, looks at the giving of the torah the giving of the law and how that connects to acts 2 from exodus 19 to acts 2 man put your seatbelt on these teachings are world class i just praise god for rabbi jason our relationship with him. So enjoy. Wow. Shalom. Shalom. Man, I love the Upper Room family. If I, I always love, this is my favorite place to worship. Wasn't, I'm just overcome by the Spirit every time I come. Wasn't worship amazing this morning? And of course, you guys, we love you, and you guys have been such a blessing to us, and we count you as family as well. And I am thank you for sharing that dream. And two things I take from it. One is I hope you all had a big breakfast, because when you tell the rabbi you can be here all day to the morning, that's a dangerous thing. Dangerous. No pressure, glory coming. So when you feel the pressure, I think there's only one thing to do. You got to tell a joke. I love your heart. I love that we're going to be neighbors. I love the fact that God has given you a global vision for prayer and worship for women, for Israel, for the next generation. Uh, even the first time I came here, I believe I gave you a word about Moses and about leading the generations and it's just powerful. And I love the fact that God has given you a heart for an upper room Dallas and also an upper room Israel. I love the fact that you guys feel a call to be planted in Israel and are pursuing that vision along with the vision to have a new, a larger facility here, which you obviously need, thank God. And I think one of the reasons why that's so important is because, I'll tell you, there was a, there was a, a preacher that came from the U.S. and he went to visit the Pope. And he saw the Pope... And he was in his office and he saw this gold phone on his desk with red velvet. And he said to the Pope, what is that? And he said, that is a phone that is a direct line to heaven. He goes, so whenever I don't get a prayer answered, I can pick up the call and I can call directly and get an answer from heaven. And he's like, listen, the preacher's like, can I try it? He goes, no, it's like $1,000 a minute. It's a long distance call. It's really expensive, only for emergencies. He goes to Israel, he's in the chief rabbi's office, he sees another special phone, silver with blue, he says, Rabbi, 
tell me what that phone is. He goes, that is a direct line to heaven. We get in a bind, we pick it up, we call God, direct answer, direct communication. And he goes, wow, he goes, I would ask you to try it, but the Pope has one too. And I know it's really expensive. And the rabbi says, what do you mean really expensive? He goes, the Pope told me it was $1,000 a minute. How much is it here to call heaven? He goes, it's 10 cents a minute. He says, 10 cents a minute, $1,000, 10 He goes, can you help me explain why? He goes, listen, you should understand from Jerusalem, it's a local call. <laughs> Jerusalem is the place where God chose to have his presence dwell, to have his house built for his glory to reside. It's the place where he sent Jesus. It's the place that he ascended into heaven. It's the place that he is going to descend and return and establish his kingdom to rule and reign from there. So of course, if that is the center of God's kingdom, you could imagine the kingdoms of this world led by another king are going to try and be in conflict with God's plans and purposes. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about the conflict in a bit, but as Michael said, today is a very important day on the biblical calendar. I believe one of the things we have to learn to do is live with the times and the seasons. We have to understand the times and the seasons. Part of understanding the times is understanding God's appointed times, the biblical holidays. Every major event in the life of Jesus happened on a biblical holiday. We're going to get deeper into Pentecost tonight. So if you want to understand what's going on in Acts chapter 2 and why are there tongues of fire and what does this mean and all of the connections, we're going to get into that later. We're going to get into that this evening. But I want to talk to you a little bit about, I believe, something that's connected to Pentecost, the themes of Pentecost, and something that's very important for this time and season. Because not only did Jesus die as the Passover lamb, he rose from the dead on a biblical holiday, the biblical holiday of first fruits. And beginning on the biblical holiday of first fruits, it began the 49-day countdown to Pentecost. So what started at Passover culminates in Pentecost. We'll talk about it more tonight. But during, the, during those 50 days to Pentecost, during the countdown, for 40 days, Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus taught the disciples the mysteries and the meanings of the kingdom during that time. And during that time, there's an important uh, story that occurs and I believe this, is, this encounter, this story is so important because I believe what we are living in is something that Jesus taught during this countdown to Pentecost. I believe that we are in a John 21 moment. We're going to look at the story, but you know what happens. The disciples are fishing all night. They catch nothing. Jesus says, throw the nets. Again, they catch a great catch of fish. I believe that the greatest catch the world has ever seen is coming, and you are an example of what God is doing. Friends, we are in a time where there is going to be historic revival in the world. 
And prayer and worship are going to be the foundation of ushering in that revival. Reason why it's so important, one reason, this is just an aside, is because Psalm 150 says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. When we worship him, right? When we worship him, we're giving back to God the very breath that he breathed into us in the very beginning. We're giving to him back in worship. And when the breath he puts into us and the breath of the spirit that is in us, when we release it back to God, it shifts the atmosphere and prepares the way for revival. So I believe there's a great catch that is coming. But God's not going to bring the catch until we prepare the nets that can contain it. You can't have the catch without the container for the catch. And historically, every major revival has not endured. Why? Because ultimately, the nets broke. I believe in this season, God is wanting us to prepare the nets for revival. And I believe that he is wanting to give us the nets that won't break to contain the greatest catch that's coming. So Lord, we just want to ask that this morning you'd open our hearts, that you'd open our eyes, you'd give us eyes to hear, you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit has to say. We pray for the Rosh the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, and we say, Bo na Ruach Elohim, Bo na Ruach Elohim, come Holy Spirit, in the name of Yeshua Jesus, our Messiah, Amen. So Acts, John 21, after these things, Yeshua, Jesus, revealed himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Simon said to them, I'm going fishing. We're coming with you too. They said they went out and got in the boat and they caught nothing that night. At dawn, Yeshua stood on the beach, but the disciples didn't know it was Yeshua. So Yeshua said to them, boys, you don't happen to have any fish, do you? No, they answered. He said to them, throw the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they threw the net and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Friends, the first thing we see here is that the disciples were fishing all night and they caught nothing. The interesting thing here is that there's actually a hint here in the Hebrew. The word for fish is dog. Can you say dog? D-A-G, dog. Dog means fish. And the same root for fish in Hebrew is the same root for fear and anxiety. The reason why the disciples caught nothing is because they were fishing from a place of fear and anxiety. When you fish from a place of fear, your nets are always going to be left to you empty. And what we have to understand, and this will tie into the greater conflict of what's going on in the Middle East, is that what is the root of fear? Fear is rooted in lies. Fear is a liar. The devil is a liar. When you come into agreement with lies, you will always wind up living in fear. 
when you believe lies about yourself, when you believe lies about other people, other individuals, other ethnicities, other, there's that fear, those lies are gonna lead to fear. Lies feed fear and fear leads to hate. The root of racism, the root of discrimination, the root of conflict is because we have fear of under other individuals that are rooted in lies. It might be fear that they're going to harm us. It, physically, it might be fear that like, I'm going to be harmed economically if that group of people prospers or allow this or that. And it's true on a national level. It's true on an individual level. That's why the devil is a liar. All conflict is rooted in lies that are fed by fear that leads to hatred. So to deal with the lies, you have to expose the truth. To deal with hate, you have to come in love. And so friends, I want to encourage us, each one of us have believed lies about ourselves, lies about other people, and if there's ever going to be revival, we have to stop speaking the lies. Part of the division in the churches is rooted in lies. You know, we're this, you're that, we're the true this, you're not the true that. We have the lies. Instead of the truth that... Yeshua Jesus should be at the center and he's the one that unites us. And he's bigger than our petty theological differences. But a lot of, the, if we're really honest, a lot of the division in the church, a lot of the division in the world is rooted in fear. Right? Like if we join with someone else, are they going to steal my people? What's going to happen to our finances? Right? What's going to happen to our cherished beliefs that we have? Well, the Lord's bigger than all that, right? I mean, come on. So the reality is if you're living from a place of fear, your lives, your nets, your relationships are going to be empty. We have to be real and ask ourselves, what lives are we believing? But also what we see here is that Yeshua, Jesus says, cast the nets again, and he says, cast the nets on what? The right side of the boat. So what it implies is that they were fishing on the left side of the boat. Why is it bad that they're fishing from the left and not from the right? Listen, it's always bad to fish from the left. And I'm not talking about your politics here. This is not a political statement. What we have to understand here is that in Jewish thought, the left side is the side of fire, Aish. It's the side of strict justice. It is the side of judgment. It is the side of severity. Listen, when you live from a place of severe judgment of other people, when you live from a place of harshness, when you live from a place of being critical, your nets are going to be left to you empty. Fire burns. God doesn't want, you know, there have been times in history where people have preached the hellfire and brimstone. That's not what this revival is going to be rooted in. This is not a revival rooted in the left side. 
This is not sinners in the hands of the angry God type of revival. This is a revival that is rooted in the right side because the right side is the side of God's hesed. It's the side of his loving kindness. The right side is the side of God's covenantal love. The right side, if the left side is water, then the right side is the opposite of water, opposite of fire, which is, I just said it, water, my New York accent, water, water, water. So the right side is water. What we have to understand, and this is important, the letter, the word for water in Hebrew is mayim. Can you say mayim? Mayim begins with the Hebrew letter Mem, which is M, and ends with the Hebrew letter M, which is M. Mayim. So the symbol for water in Hebrew is the letter Mem. What's interesting is that the name Messiah begins with the letter Mem. Moses begins with the letter Mem. Miriam begins with the letter Mem. There's lots of significance to Mem. But Mem is actually the 13th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Say 13. Now, in our culture, 13 is a what number? Unlucky number, right? I mean, look, I'm Jason. On Friday the 13th, I get all sorts of jokes. <laughs> Stay away from Jason. It's Friday the 13th. A lot of floors don't have, a lot of hotels don't have what? 13 floors. Superstition. Biblically, 13 is one of the best numbers. It's represented by the letter Mem, water, which is associated with love. And kindness. Hebrew is alphanumeric. Every, there's no Roman numerals in the Bibles. You write numbers with letters in Hebrew. So every word has a numerical value. In Hebrew, the word for love is ahava. Can you say ahava? ahava. Love equals, love adds the number, the letters in the word love in Hebrew adds up to 13. 13 is the number of love. That's why the love chapter in the Bible is what? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love equals 13, but the word for oneness, can you say echad? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The two shall become, the husband and wife, the two shall become what? Echad, one. Oneness equals 13. So what's the significance of this? The nets that don't break on the right side, the nets that are cast on the right side are the nets that are unified as one in love. Listen, the nets are only as strong as the knots. The knots in the net represents the network of kingdom relationships God is bringing together at this time to contain the catch that is coming. Because here, why do we need unity? Practically, why do we need unity for revival? Practically, right? Because listen, if God is bringing the greatest catch that the world has ever seen, God's not going to waste his time. He doesn't waste his energy, right? If he's going to bring the catch, if he's going to give you a blessing, you need a container to contain that blessing. The blessing can only be as big as the container. John chapter 2, fill the pots of the brim. Jesus turning the water into the wine. The 
water, the, the, the manifestation of the blessing could only be as big as the pots that they could put the water in. Yeah. Well, the same is true with revival. He need, if there's going to be a big revival, there's going to be need to be a big mat, net. There's two key things to this net of revival. The nets have to be sizable enough and they have to be strong enough to contain what God is going to bring. Here's the reality. No individual organization, ministry, church can have a net that is big enough to contain what is coming. The nets have broken in the past because everyone wanted to control the net. When people saw revival coming, like we're going to start our own net. We're going to start our own thing, right? Instead of saying, let's join with God's doing, they're like, oh no, we're going to start our own thing. And they tried to, they tried to control what God was doing. And if you want to destroy revival, try and control it. You'll quench revival. If you try and control or manage or administer a move of God, you're, it's like putting water on the fire. You're going to quench it. You're going to kill it. So in this season, unity is important because if we don't join nets, the nets will not be sizable enough to contain what's coming, nor will the nets be strong enough to contain what is coming. A threefold cord isn't broken. We strengthen each other. And there's a lot that could be said about that. But part of what we have to understand is that in this season, there is, I believe, a part of the key to this, one of the keys to this net that won't break. You can't fully have John 21 without John 17, like you prayed this morning. In John 17, Yeshua's in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And he prays that these and those would be one as he and the Father are one. Simple question, these and those. Who are these and who are those? These are the Jewish disciples and apostles that were there. Who are those? Those are the nations that would believe as a result of the Great Commission. Until these and those become one. That's what he's praying for. He's praying specifically for unity. But the foundation of that unity is for Jew and Gentile to be one in Messiah. And then he goes on to say, when these and those will be one, he goes on to say, then you will be perfected in unity and the world will know the Father has sent me. We will not be perfected in unity to Jew and Gentile become one in him. We will not grow into the fullness of maturity. Nor will the world know that he is the one until we are O-N-E, one in him. And why, and look, friends, this is more, and I say all this, this is more important to understand than ever because at the heart of the conflict in the world today is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. If the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it means that the gospel not only saves our soul, but has the answers that are afflicting the world today. 
Listen, the good news is not believe in Yeshua, Jesus, and you're going to go to heaven one day, but basically the world in your life is going to suck until then. That is not good enough news. Not good enough news. The gospel contains the power and the wisdom to deal with the conflict and the situations and circumstances that we are dealing with in the world. It is not just spiritual. It is spiritual, but it is practical and tangible. And if Jesus came to bring shalom, peace, which is the ultimate blessing of the kingdom, is shalom, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not, right? He promises us peace. Then the gospel contains the answers to the conflicts in the world and it contains the answers to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the conflict between Jews and Arabs. And I believe, in fact, the unity of Jew and Gentile and the unity of his people is going to be one of the greatest testimonies to the world of the power of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. And that's John 17. That's why it says, then the world will know that the Father sent me. Because what can't be solved in the natural, listen, what can't be solved in the natural can only be solved in him. And I'm going to tell you, I saw this powerfully in action. It's the reason why we have our ministry fusion. It's the fusion of old and new, Gentile and Jew, word and spirit. How many of you guys love Lou Engel? Right? I'll never forget I met Lou Engel for the first time. I didn't know who he was. I was invited into this prayer meeting. He's praying, Lord, send revival. I'm like, Lord, who's this guy who's praying like a Jew? He doesn't look very Jewish. <laughs> Lou calls me up one day. He says, Jason, we're doing this event in Detroit. Ford is the father of anti-Semitism. How do you break the spirit of anti-Semitism? I said, Lou, it's Ruth and Boaz. It's the story of Ruth and Boaz. Now, what you have to understand is that this is the time. This is the time. This is biblical Pentecost beginning this evening. On Pentecost, Jews read Ruth and Boaz. This is the time when Ruth and Boaz occurred. This is the time where Jewish people around the world are focusing on the story of Ruth and Boaz. I say, Lou, it's the story of Ruth and Boaz. He says, come share. We're at Ford Field. I get up, 50,000 people, however many people there, crazy, little nervous, right? Get up there, share the story about Ruth and Boaz. You know the story, right? Ruth was a Gentile Moabite woman, married a Jew, lost her husband, lost her family, and her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, says, I'm going back to my land, to Israel, the land of Judah, to Bethlehem. And Ruth says, although her sister-in-law stayed behind, Orpah, Ruth says, I'm going with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And, you know, and she decides she's not going to leave her no matter what. So she goes back. Ruth and Naomi are destitute. They have nothing. Poverty. Ruth, uh, Naomi says to Ruth, go glean in the fields of Boaz. He's a distant relative to ours. Boaz takes notice of Ruth. 
they fall in love. Ruth doesn't just get the gleaning, she gets the whole inheritance. Ruth and Boaz are blessed. But what many people don't understand is the backstory. Who is Ruth and Boaz? Why is it important that they come together? Why is the story read on Pentecost? The reason why is because Abraham is told to leave and go to a land that God will show him. He takes with him, one of the people he takes with him is his nephew Lot. God prospers and blesses Lot and Abraham and they become so prosperous, their herdsmen begin to quarrel. God's, Abraham says to Lot, you go one direction and I'll go the other. I want us there to be peace, but between us and Lot chooses to go down and dwell in Sodom and Gomorrah. God judges Sodom and Gomorrah, but spares Lot because of Abraham. Lot's wife looks back, gets turned into a pillar of salt. Lot's daughters think the end of the world has come and they have relationships with their father. Two nations are born out of this relationship. One is Moab, the family that Ruth comes from. The coming together of Ruth and Boaz is the restoration of the relationship between Abraham and Lot. Lot was blessed, but when he separated from Abraham, everything went wrong. But when he came together, the blessing was restored. The family was united. And what's amazing here is that there's four women in the genealogy of Jesus. In the first century, women were not included in Jewish genealogies. There are four women, and guess what they all have in common? They're all Gentile women. One of them is Ruth. Why? Because it takes Jew and Gentile to birth the line of the Messiah. It takes Jew and Gentile to birth the line of the kingdom. And we read Ruth and Boaz on this day because David was born and died on Pentecost, according to Jewish tradition. And David is a direct descendant of Ruth and Boaz and the one who, through whom Jesus comes, the son of David. And so just like it took Jew and Gentile to birth the line of David, it's going to take Jew and Gentile to fulfill John 17, John 21, and birth the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And here's part of the problem. Who are the modern day Ruths and the modern day Boazes? The modern day Boazes, I believe, are the Messianic Jewish believers. Look, I want to be clear. They're, God wants us to bless Israel, but the family is the Messianic Jewish believer. A lot of times Christians get excited about Israel and they attach themselves to the wrong Jew. Boaz wasn't the first Jew Ruth was married to. She was married to an unbelieving Jewish person at first. Boaz is in the lineage of Jesus, the person of faith. <laughs> Boaz is the believing Jew. Don't connect yourself to the, I mean, you can't be in the most intimate relationship with the wrong one, but it has to be with the right one. Yes. If the Messianic Jew is Boaz, who is, the mess, who, is the, who is Ruth? It's who? The believing Gentiles, the church. Why is this so important? 
I, used to, I was a DJ back in the day. And I used to love the song. It goes like this. It takes two to make a thing go right. It takes two. It takes two. Right? We all know what that means. The first commandment is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Just like in the natural, it takes a man and a woman. The great commission is a fulfillment of the first commandment to be fruitful and multiply on a spiritual level, to be spiritually, to make sons and daughters, to make spiritual sons and daughters. You need a mother and a father to be fruitful and multiply. The problem is when the church historically separated itself from the Jewish believers, you wound up with a church that was a single parent, a mother without a father. And you ended up with the Jewish people that had a father without the mother. And I don't want to get too deep because I want to go somewhere else with this. But you see how, I want to show you how this plays out practically. That's why the church becomes, if there's one fault of the church, right? I'd say it's sloppy agape. Right? Because it's the father that brings order and discipline and structure. It's the mother that's the nurturing and love. In general, in general. It's a generalization, right? But that's why Jews, that's why so many Christians went to extreme grace. And that's why so many Jews went to extreme law. Because you had a father without a mother and a mother without a father and it was out of balance. And so there has to be the restoration of these two. Ruth needs Boaz. Boaz needs Ruth as much as she needs him. And that's the unity of us coming together to birth the kingdom, to birth the line of David, just like Ruth and Boaz set the foundation for the Davidic dynasty and for the coming of the Messiah. Now, in the nets that don't break, and there's a lot more we could say about that, but for the sake of time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it there, but just to say, listen, we can't be a motherless, fatherless church. We need each other. We need each other. And this brings us to the situation in the Middle East. I did a post this week on Instagram that probably is probably the most, most post that I ever did, most traction any post I ever did on Instagram. And it was a picture of a religious Jewish kid and a Palestinian kid. And Auden has said this, being pro-Israel doesn't make you anti-Palestinian. You can support Israel and care about the Palestinians. Being pro-Israel doesn't make you anti-Palestinian. Now, there was a lot of positive responses but there was also a lot of negative responses. The negative responses were, Jews are killers, Israelis are murderers, they're Nazis, you can't say you love the Palestinians and support Israel. And it was just sad to see that response. And part of my, and this is where it goes back to fear rooted in lies and nets being left empty and the nets breaking. Listen, the first time the disciples Jesus said, cast the nets. Peter cast the nets and the nets broke. That was the first time when he called Peter. Listen, Peter didn't know his identity and destiny in the Lord. The nets broke. He didn't know the promises. Listen, the peace process is broken. It's going to break. 
because of the fears and the lies and the lack of the truth. And it's so sad to be, it broke my heart because listen, I, I said, I said in the response, I said, listen, if you're going to come from the perspective that all Israelis are occupiers and murderers and evil and all these horrible things, I said, that's just as wrong as me saying all Palestinians are terrorists. That's just as wrong. And I said, furthermore, if you really believe that, the saddest thing about it is there's no hope for peace. Because if you really believe an entire group of people is that evil, that bad, how can you ever have any hope of ever coming to any sort of agreement, any sort of resolution? There is no way. You, couldn't, you could never make peace with Hitler. If you believe the Palestinians are as bad as Hitler, or the Jews are as bad as Hitler, or they're all... There's no hope. It's not helpful. If you want to say that Jew Israelis are all occupiers, they stole the land. Look, here's the we can get into we'll get into some of the history in it, but here's the reality. Forget what even beyond the history, beyond God's promises. The reality is you have to do with facts on the ground. There are millions of Jews living there. They're not going anywhere. There are millions of Palestinians living there. They're not going anywhere. So to say, to delegitimize the other, just even practically, or say, you need to leave, it's not going to happen. It's not reality. It's not going to solve the situation. Hatred and lies is not going to help. It's going to perpetuate the cycle of violence. It gets us nowhere. Forget about who's right, who's wrong from it. It just, it doesn't get you anywhere. You have to deal with the reality. You have to deal with the situation. Like it, don't like it, it's what it is. So the question is, how do you deal with it? A hateful response is not helpful. Denying the reality, wishing it were different, not helpful. And unfortunately, a lot of the media is fanning the flames. And unfortunately, a lot of the media is blaming Israel and they're taking it out of context, not telling the truth. And I just want to say this, you can't love the king of the Jews and hate his people. You can't love the king of Israel, Jesus, and hate the Jewish people. And you can't say you love the Lord and hate the Palestinians. If God is love, Jesus says, you can't say you love God and hate your brother. The truth is not in you. And I, it, it, it hurts me because I have a lot of Palestinian friends that I love. And this is a hard conversation to have. But having a biblical perspective and worldview is helpful, so I'm going to try and do it quickly. So here we go. First of all, I believe to have a, our worldview needs to be biblical. So what does the Bible have to say? In quick summary, going back to Abraham, God tells Abraham to leave, to go to the land that I'll show you. Genesis 12, 7 says this, Then the Lord Adonai appeared to Abraham and said to him, I will give this land to your seed. God made a decision to give the land even be this, this land called the promised land to the Jewish people, to the children of Israel. Genesis chapter 15, God reaffirms that covenant 
what's known as the covenant between the parts. God tells Abraham to cut these animals in half and put them on two sides. And then God causes Abraham to fall asleep and the Lord passes through in fire between these parts. And in this covenant, God says to Abraham, he reaffirms the covenant, says, on that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham, Genesis 15, 18, saying, I will give this land to your seed from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kizanites, the Kadmites, the Hittites, a lot of ites, won't go into all the ites, the seven nations of the land, which is today way more land. It would inc- if, the, if the biblical boundaries include Egypt, parts of Egypt, Sudan, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, and parts of Turkey, which Israel doesn't have, the West Bank and Gaza are included in that. And what happens, this is important to understand, Abraham was, was, Abraham was what at the time? What do we say he was What? Sleeping. Why is that important? That only God passed between the parts? Because in ancient Near East, when a covenant was made, both parties passed between the dead animals. Why? Because what they're saying is if I break the covenant, this is what should happen to me. It's a warning. Both parties passed through. Both parties took the oath. In this case, only God took the oath. Why does that mean? God's giving the land to Israel was to Abraham was an unconditional unilateral covenant. Only God entered into it and it was not conditioned on Israel, anything Israel would do or not do. Because some people make the argument, well, Jews don't believe, so therefore they don't have a right to the land. Well, the covenant is unconditional. Jews can forfeit the right temporarily to have the blessing and go into exile, but they can't forfeit the ultimate promise. And this is even spoken of in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says, I set before the land, go in and take it to possess it. Then Deuteronomy 30 says this, talks about know when these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse that I've set before you and you take them to heart and all the nations were Adonai, the Lord your God has banished you and you return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice, voice according to all that I am commanding you today, your children with all your heart, then I will gather you wherever you have been scattered and you will go in and possess the land of your fathers. So even in Deuteronomy, God says to Moses, you're gonna disobey you're going to go into exile, but I'm going to bring you back. Then you come to another key passage to understand the times in which we live in because Israel is God's prophetic timepiece. You want to know where we are in God's prophetic plans? Look to Israel. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel has a vision of the dry bones. God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel says, Lord, only you know. The bones come back together but there's no life in the bones. The bodies are reassembled, bone to bone, flesh comes on, but there's no life. And then God says, prophesy again, and the breath of life comes in. Why is this important? This is a two-stage restoration of Israel. The bones coming together is God bringing back Israel in unbelief. The prophecies that Israel would be gathered and reestablished in unbelief. It was unbelievers that secular Jews mostly that established the modern state of Israel. The second half is yet to come, which is the breath of life coming in. That's the revival among Israel that ultimately will help lead to the return of the Lord.
So understand there's a twofold work. First is regathering unbelief. Friends, there are more Jews in Israel than any place in the world today. Jews have come back from, from lost tribes that be found in Africa, China, India, Jews from the Soviet Union, South America. They've all come back to Israel. There's more Jews in Israel than any place in the world. This prophecy is being fulfilled. The regathering has ha- is happening and it is an unto the great move of God that's going to happen when the re- great revival among the Jewish people that book of Revelations and other passages talk about. So we have to understand this. Biblically, God has given the title to the land to the Jewish people and their descendants in perpetuity. Now, we have to understand historically is in, both in 70 AD and 135 AD, the Romans expelled the Jewish people from the land. There was never not a time when there were Jews in the land, but the majority of Jews were kicked outside of the land. And for 400 years, pretty much, the land that we call Israel today, the promised land, okay, was controlled by the Ottoman Empire, which was a Turkish empire. Turkey sided with Germany in World War I. They lost the war. Britain came in and defeated them. And General Allenby recaptured Jerusalem and the land. And for a number, so, is, so now, the, now the Holy Land and the surrounding Arab regions are occupied by Great Britain. This is where many of the modern day Arab nations were born. A lot, of these, a lot of the Arab nations were born out of this period. They didn't exist before then, like Jordan, for example. At the same time, within a few years of that happening, there's something known as the Balfour Declaration. The, 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 uh, the English government says the Jewish people have a right to establish a homeland within their historic country. It's called the Balfour Declaration. It was, England was controlling, they gave the right to do it, Jews started to come back, and then they kind of reneged on that promise because of opposition from the Arab leadership. And then what happens, World War II comes, six million Jews die, there was no place for Jews to go, I lost most of my family during the Holocaust, no one wanted to take them. Okay, if they would have had place to go, they could have survived. Most places, even America, didn't want to take the Jews, and so they died. So after coming out of the Holocaust, Jews realized, even before then, in the 1800s, Jews started to go back to the land of Israel because they realized that there was a lot of hatred for them in Europe and around the world. And so all that to say is this, 1948, the United Nations, or what was the League of Nations, or United Nations, said Israel, this came up with what was known as the UN Partition Plan. Half the country was going to Israel for a state. Half the country were going to the Arab population for a state. And Israel declared a state, and the, and the Arab nations and people in the land rejected the idea, and they went to war against Israel, known as the War of Independence, 1948. Egypt, 
Jordan, Syria, a number of other nations, everyone thought Iraq, Lebanon, everyone thought that Israel was going to be wiped out. Israel had no official military, no official weaponry, and everyone thought it was going to be a bloodbath. But there's miraculous stories. Israel won the war and was established as a state. There's a general at West Point. They said at one point, we study all the conflicts of the world except some of the Israeli-Arab conflicts like the War of Independence because we don't study miracles. (laughs) There was no way to explain it. It should never have happened. It was only God. I mean, literally, Israel had one airplane versus a modern air force. They had one cannon. It's a crazy story. I mean, if you knew that, it's crazy. Crazy. Visions and angels appearing to Arab. I mean, this is all documented. Crazy stuff. Then in 1967, the, the number of the Arab nations still... Okay, so at that point, 1948, Israel becomes a state. But Jordan invades and they control Jerusalem, the old city, the western wall, the place where all the holy sites are. 1967... The Arab nations want to invade again. They considered Israel as occupiers. And in six days, Israel defeats the Arab armies. Another crazy miracle, won the war. 1973, during Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, led by Egypt and Syria, they attack Israel unprovoked. Israel didn't provoke them. They wanted to drive Israel into the sea. It looked like Israel was going to lose. They won again. 1979, Israel signs a peace treaty with Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, Menachem Begin. Israel gives back the entire Sinai, which is larger than the entire nation of Israel today, and all the oil that's there for peace. In the 1980s, that was in the 1980s, in the late 1980s, what's known as the first Palestinian intifada in Gaza and the West Bank, the Palestinians feel oppressed, they feel occupied, they feel mistreated, they start rise up, terrorist bombings, all sorts of fighting, and this, this intifada, this conflict between the Palestinians ended in what's known as, you heard, have you heard of the Oslo Accords? And in the Oslo Accords, they agreed to reach a peace. Is, Israeli army withdraws from the majority of the West Bank and turns over the majority of control to the Palestinians. Then what happens in 2000, Camp David Accords, a comprehensive peace plan was offered to the Palestinians for a demilitarized Palestinian state in 92% of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. 92% of what they wanted without a military. Part of the issue was Jerusalem. Yasser Arafat rejects it, head of the Palestinian, Liberation, uh, Palestinian Authority, and says no and offers no alternatives. That leads to a second intifada conflict between Arabs and Jews, right? And that ends in 2005 when Israel agrees to take its settlers out of Gaza and its military out of Gaza, and they literally uproot thousands of Jewish families and move them from Gaza in hopes of peace. But there's no peace. And so I say all that to say Israel has been willing to make peace. They gave back land to Egypt. They offered to, to the Palestinians land. They've been willing to move and uproot people. But it's really hard. And I, so, the, so I just want to say this. I feel for the Palestinians. But I'm going to be and I, and I And I believe that I'd like to see the Palestinians prosper. And I think it would be great to, for them to have their own 
I mean, they, they are pretty much autonomous, but to even have uh, better. But I believe part of the problem is that the world and the media wants to make this political, but it's primarily spiritual. So here's the reality. The reality is this. Radical Islam has hijacked, I believe, the Palestinian cause. What started as a Palestinian movement for national independence, which I think is a good thing. I think it's a fine thing. I think it's great if the Palestinians have their own state and have their complete autonomy and they prosper. But the reality is, is that radical Islam will never live at peace with Jews and Christians. Fundamentally, theologically, it is an affront to Islam that Jews occupy a land that Muslims once occupied and what they consider the third holiest site. They're never going to give up jihad. They're never going to stop until they control Jerusalem, until they kick the Jews out, and the Jews are never giving up Jerusalem. And one of the reasons is, is that you look around the world, any place where there is a radical Islamic government, it's never good for religious freedom for Christian or Jews. Islam is systematically persecuting Christians and wiping out Christianity from the Middle East. That is a fact. Okay? It's not, it's not about Arabs. It's not about Palestinians. It's not even about Islam on some level. It is about a radical form of Islam. That is the reality. And so what they want to make political is really spiritual in nature. And that's the underlying thing. And I'll just say this real quick. How did we get here? How did we get to this latest conflict? Friends, it's a perfect storm. I'll just run down the factors real quick. We've got time to get into specifics. I don't know. Number one, it's the time of Ramadan. Hundreds of thousands of Muslims go up to Jerusalem. It coincides with Jerusalem Day that celebrates the reunification of Israel under, uh, of Jerusalem under Jewish control. That's already going to lead to some level of problems, right? So then... That's happening, and then there's an Israeli court case that maybe some of you heard about, a court that's, there were some, some Jews who were trying to take back land in, East, in a part of East Jerusalem that, histor- that, has, had, uh, that, were, that had, has mostly Arab families, mostly Palestinian families, and so basically what the Palestinians were saying, what the people were saying, was that Jews were trying to be settlers, they were trying to illegally occupy a place that should belong to Palestinians. And this was a sign that Jews were occupiers and settlers and oppressors and breaking international law. Friends, it's all... Look, if it was true, I would tell you, and I'd admit it, because listen, there are Jews, there are religious Jewish extremists who have hate in their hearts, and they're equally as evil, right? I want to be clear. There are Israelis that are that have hate, that are racist, that are discriminatory, mostly extreme religious Israelis, okay? That's, that's set. There are settlers that, are, that are do things that are wrong. So, so not everything Israel does is right. I just want to be clear. This is a very complicated situation with years of history that's hard to un, unravel. So I just want to be clear about this. But just what I want to tell you is that what you're hearing so much is not true. 
It's not true that Israelis were trying to illegally seize property. It's actually, that's the thing that sparked all this, really, by the way, during this time. What you have to understand, I'm not going to go into the whole situation. Leave it to say this. There's a court case. It's not between Israel and Palestinians. It's between Jewish landowners and Palestinian landowners. It's not a national thing. It's between individuals, okay? What you also have to understand is this. The state of Israel, when the Jordanians came in and took the land in Jerusalem, Israel, when the Jordanians gave titles to Palestinians, even though they took it from Jews, Israel has, has always supported the right to Palestinians who had the title to the land. They've never given back any land to Jews of Palestinians who hold title to the land. What the Israeli courts have said, if there is a property that no one holds title to, that, Jew, that a Jew can show that he has an unbroken chain of custody of that land, they have a right to pursue it if no one holds title to it. Not taking it from someone that has a, has a title to it, only for those that don't have a title to it. And the courts protect, even if, even if Palestinians were living there and didn't have title, the courts have ruled that if a Palestinian lives there and pays rent, they are protected tenants and cannot be expelled. expelled. Only those that were expelled were those that chose to live there, had no title, and refused to pay rent. And we're talking about a small amount of property. So I just want to say the media is blowing this out. It's not stating the facts. It's not being real. Okay, so you have all this going on, a weak Israeli government because of struggles with electing internal issues in the Israeli government. What you have to understand is there's internal issues among the Palestinians. There is a division between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. Palestinian Authority controls uh, the West Bank. Hamas controls Gaza. And part of why this is blowing up now, blowing up now, is because the because Hamas is growing in popularity, and there was going to be elections, and there was a strong possibility Hamas might oust the Palestinian Authority, which is the party Yasser Arafat started, and because of that, basically, the Palestinian Authority came up with a way, and they said we're canceling the elections, no elections. And so the only so the instigation of the war in part was political on the part of Hamas to gain popularity and show, hey, we're the ones who are resisting. We're the ones who are standing up. So understand, there is a political aspect to this as well on the Palestinian side. But I also want to say this. Palestinians are suffering. They're living in extreme poverty. It's a heartbreaking situation. It needs a resolution. There ne- something needs to be done. There needs to be compromises on both sides. But it's not going to be rooted in saying the other side is illegitimate or doesn't have a right to exist. Or the other people need to leave or go or this and that. That is not going to help the situation. That is not going, that is not going to be helpful. Israelis are not occupiers. They have a biblical right to the land. And I'll be honest with you, 90% of Israelis want peace. They want to live in peace. This is a hard conversation. I'm going to end it here in a minute. But just so you understand a little bit of the conflict, God loves the Palestinians. He loves the Jewish people. This is the bad news. The bad news is that there is no political solution because it's a spiritual problem. 
Something needs to be worked out practically to help to alleviate the suffering, but the reality is the only one who can bring peace is Jesus, who's the Prince of Peace. And the reality is, there's a history of, of killing and hurt on both sides of the situation. What would you do if people, I understand the Palestinians feel oppressed, but shooting rockets into Israel is not gonna solve the situation. And that's the unfortunate situation is that it's come to this place of hopelessness. But part of the reality is you've got people that have hate in their hearts. You have terrorists involved in this whole situation. You have Iran that is stirring it up. They want to, don't want to see peace. You have people who don't want to see peace. But the reality is the only solution is to come in the opposite spirit, which is the spirit of love. We need to love Israel. We need to love the Palestinians. I unashamedly support Israel, but my heart breaks for the Palestinians and I want to see a solution. And most people will tell you, you can't love both. That is foolishness. But you know what? The kingdom is foolishness. The kingdom is foolishness to those that don't understand. And I don't know how we bridge the tension or bridge the gap, but all I can tell you is this. I'm not going to speak bad. I'm going to speak the truth, but I would never put down the Palestinians. I'm never going to put down Israel. And I'm going to stand for love and hope that people can have, people can come to an understanding and that somehow Jesus can work a miracle. So, Abba, we just want to lift this situation up to you. We thank you for this Pentecost Sunday. We thank you that you call for unity of Jew and Gentile in Messiah. We know this conflict cannot be solved in the natural. We know there's fear. We know there's hurt. We know there's pain. And we know the enemy is feeding it with lies to make it worse. But we thank you, God. We believe the only answer is revival. We believe the only answer is an awakening among the Palestinians among Muslims, an awakening among the Jewish people for the great revival, for the nets that don't break, for you to pour out your spirit, for to unite you, Ruth and Boaz, because Arab and Jew can be united in Messiah. And we thank you, God, that is the truth, that in you we can have peace. And we ask for that peace. We ask for you to unite us. We ask God for you to pour out your spirit. We ask for you to pour out your blessing. We ask God for a move of God. Prepare us for a new Pentecost. Give us the nests that don't break. In the name of Yeshua, Jesus, our Messiah, we pray for an activation and an impartation in your name. Amen.